Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 6, 2017, and my guest is Sally Sattel. She is a psychiatrist, author of numerous books, a lecturer in psychiatry at Yale University School of Medicine, and a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. She recently wrote an article with Alan Viard entitled, The Kindest Tax Cut, a Federal Tax Credit for Organ Donations, and that's going to be our topic for today. Sally, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks for having me. So you bring a special perspective to kidney donations. Talk about your personal story. Yeah, I got a kidney in um, 2006, and then I got another kidney uh, a year ago, almost a year ago today. And uh, when I got my first one, it was sort of a surprise. A lot of people who know that they're going to need a kidney. Uh, Well, by definition, they know they're going to need a kidney. What I meant is that they have certain certain illnesses. They're either diabetic or they've got lupus, uh, severe hypertension that's been poorly managed for a while, high, high blood pressure. I mean, people know they're at risk for this, uh, for kidney failure. But in my case, it was sort of a surprise. I just went to the doctor for a, a regular checkup. And this is the part of the story that scares everyone because I felt completely fine. And during a routine uh, blood draw, um, found out that uh, I had uh, well that I had kidney failure, which is rather easy to diagnose. It's it's a um, it's a, a test called a creatinine level. But but when you go for a, a regular blood draw, routine blood draw, that's that's one of the uh, that's one of the um, indices they measure. So uh, you know they tested it again, and that was it was the same. So. So the clock was ticking for me because I knew, you know, from my medical training that if you have kidney failure, um, you need you need a new kidney or you will languish on dialysis for for years. And um, no matter how long you are on dialysis, your life will be prematurely shortened. I mean, people have lived for 20 years, even a little longer on dialysis. Some people tolerate it better than others. I mean, you know, that's a process where your blood is cleansed of toxins about three times a week for about four hours at a time. You go to a clinic. Most people feel very debilitated by it. The average person on dialysis can't hold a job, but but some do. And, uh, and as I say, some people, it isn't a psychologically devastating to some folks, but others find it so uh, so distressing that there actually some suicide is not that unusual. So, you know, the idea of being tethered to that machine, while granted, it would keep me alive. Now, if my liver had failed and I didn't get a transplant, that would be it. So kidney dialysis does keep people alive for a while, but uh, it just seemed like a really, really half half a life. And so I knew I needed a kidney, but I didn't know exactly when I would need dialysis. So as I said, the clock's sort of ticking. And uh, it turned out I had about a good year before my function got to the point where it really was physically, you know, becoming physically uh, debilitated. But it was very hard finding a donor. And that and that's what kind of galvanized me about this whole issue of, of the shortage. But um, uh, just in terms of finding a donor, as I say, it was ex- extremely difficult. You know, you don't. It's not like every day you ask people for a body part. And uh, I, I didn't have. Uh, I have a very tiny family, and and to make a long story short, n- none of them were. Uh, I didn't feel I could ask any of any of them. And in fact, I never really asked anyone. I just, I would do it all differently if heaven forbid there's yet a third time I have to go through this. But um, see, I'm very nice to my interns. But um, I would just talk about it with folks and I wasn't even being coy. I just sort of thought magically, oh, well, some people will think about being a donor and, and, and it'll work out. But 
became pretty clear that uh, it wasn't working out. And a lot of people actually said they would do it. And I appreciate that in that I know they wanted to be, you know, I know they felt uh, empathy for my situation. But, in, you know, in the end, basically, a lot of them got cold feet uh, and backed out. And then you're in this terribly awkward position because you really can't be angry. I mean, it's an enormous thing to to ask and you you know, incredibly presumptuous to have the expectation that they owe it to you or anything. And so I was really getting very demoralized and uh, about to, you know, get ready to go on dialysis. And Virginia Postrel, uh, who I knew not very well, had uh, been at a, I think, a cocktail reception somewhere. This was in November of 2005. And she ran into a mutual friend and asked that friend how I was. And and the friend said, well, it's so hot. She needs a kidney. And Virginia went, you know, I think the next day went to her computer and said, uh, I remember the subject line. I still have the, I still have a printout of her email. It said uh, serious offer. And then she said, you know, so-and-so told me you needed a kidney. And if I'm a match, I will do it. And then I think she followed up a few minutes later with another email. I won't back out. And uh, so obviously she went through with it. This was March of 2016 and I'm no, March old, of it wasn't March me, of 2000, 2006 yeah. yeah and I'm almost as grateful to, to Steve her husband as to her because that was one of the reasons that two of my friends other friends who had seriously considered donating did not go through with it because their spouse basically said you know it's the kidney or a divorce so um so you kind of underestimate how important family uh, buy-in is in something like this. But, you know, God bless both of them. So she did it. And and uh, clearly our, uh, I got a lot smarter. And um, Virginia did, 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 you know, did very well. And she wrote some, I think, very powerful articles about the importance of, of donating organs. And I suspect she influenced a few people. I, I know an article I wrote um, about the whole experience back in 2007. I, I, for about two years afterwards, I got emails from people. This is the most gratifying thing that's ever happened to me in my life. People saying, I read your, I read your article and I, I decided to donate to a stranger. So I feel my work is done, you know, but, uh, anyway, so that had a happy ending. And, and then I took on, in addition to my various interests, at AEI, I also took on the interest of how to expand the the organ supply. Virginia Postrel was uh, a guest on Econ Talk, and and we talked about that. Uh, this is an incredible gift, kindness, uh, amazing thing. And I want to talk about your second donor in a second, but first I want to stick with with Virginia. How did that? And you're a psychiatrist, so so you're somewhat, at least, if not very self aware of the emotional component to this, how did that receiving of that organ affect you? You made a joke. You said, I got a lot smarter. I think that was an illusion of the fact that you had Virginia Postrel's kidney. Um, but how did it affect you psychologically? And how do you think it affected her? And have you and, have you and, and her talked about it? Oh, of course. You know, that's, you're certainly not the first person to ask me that, but I always find that a curious question. Some people have actually said, do you still see Virginia? It's like, oh my goodness. <laughs> she's, uh, yes, I see Virginia and she's magnificent, remains magnificent. Um, you know, as she wrote about it and as she acted the entire time, you know, we were planning to do this because there is quite a bit of a workup uh, medically and to some extent psychologically for the donor which is done by the medical center, you know, and rightly so. Um, so uh, she acted the whole time like, well, let's just get this thing over. And in fact, her, as she's, as she's written about it, she said her attitude, these are her words, I, I was very instrumental about it. You know, I had something she needed and, and I knew she had no one else to give it to her. And clearly it truly was a life and death or at least a quality of life and that solution, uh, I mean, situation. And and she did. And I mean, while on the one hand, of course, I'm just speechless with gratitude. And, and I would actually occasionally feel tearful in that first year and uh, a few years afterwards when I think of what she did for me. But it, it was sort of the same. I kind of shared her sense. Um, 
and uh, hoped that I would feel the same way if the tables were turned and someone I knew needed one. Uh, but, you know, the sense of, um, I, I didn't feel, I, kid, I of course I kid when I say my IQ went up, I could only wish, uh, but, um, uh, but people do talk about, and they get kind of romanticized the whole process. Uh, you know, I felt, and especially with hearts, as you can imagine, yeah. a heart transplant, but they actually feel like a sort of a piece of the person almost spiritually, you know, inside them, or they feel a little change in their personality. And, and both of us were sort of, you know, I think, listen, we just exchanged organs and, uh, or, or rather she gave me one. And again, thank God, I wish I were wealthy. I would endow a wing wherever she wanted. But um, but uh, I just feel like she's, of course, I mean, a bond with her uh, that uh, I'm sure you don't feel with even your closest friend. It has a quality that's that's different and almost primitive in some way, but in a, uh, a charming way. So that but that kidney didn't work out completely. Uh, yeah, that. um yeah, it should have lasted about 15 to 20 years. Living kidneys last about 15 to 20 years. And ones you get from deceased people, cadaver kidneys, um, about 10 to 12. So hers should have lasted longer also because I wasn't on dialysis first. And that tends to also detract from the longevity of the kidney, of, of a deceased and living kidney, if you've already been on dialysis for, for quite a while. So I was an ideal candidate to have her kidney last, you know, quite a while. But um, just make a long story short, I ended up getting pneumonia, possibly from the immunosuppression, because you know you have to be on immunosuppressive drugs forever so that your own immune system doesn't attack the the new organ. And um, but anyway, so I got a fairly serious pneumonia. And so then, you know, it becomes very difficult because in order to fight off the pneumonia, you're immune system needs to be unleashed, but if it's unleashed, then it's also going to attack the kidney. So it's a very delicate balance, which I lost. <laughs> Although again, it was a gradual matter. Um, it took about three years for um, Virginia's uh, kidney to really, um, you know, to, to for all the mileage basically to, to run out. And uh, so I knew about two years, even before it was probably going to fail completely that I, needed to start looking for another one. So that's rather incredible, but I just have to ask a medical question first. So your body, eight or nine years after getting this kidney, which looked something quite similar to your original kidney that you were born with, it's a kidney. It's not a repurposed Lego toy or a repurposed liver. It's a kidney. And ten, eight or ten years later, your body still is angry at it and would reject it if you were not on immunosuppressant oh, yeah. drugs. That's so interesting to me. I didn't realize that. Oh yes, that's true of uh, of, of all organs and all transplants. And some organs are uh, some organs are more. I think the word is immunogenic than others. Uh, uh, which uh, kidneys are, bone marrow is actually livers. Uh, are, uh, any organ will be rejected if there is no immunosuppression. But uh, apparently people who have liver transplants need to take fewer, less, a, a smaller dose of, uh, of um, immunosuppressants. For some reason, it's more resistant to rejection. What's the rejection? What happens? What would have happened if you did take immunosuppressive drugs, say, with a few years after your Oh, well, in two weeks, if you stop if you stop taking immunosuppressant drugs completely, then within two weeks, two to four weeks, your organ just starts to to fail, and uh, um, so you your com- complete metabolic uh, milieu just goes out of balance, and wow. and it, if your kidney shuts down, obviously You're you don't. Done. Yeah. yeah. Well, you don't. Uh, you, you, there's no way for for li- fluid to leave your body. So, at its worst, uh, you know, it would back up into your 
lungs and impede breathing. Although by the time it gets to that part, you've been in such a metabolic derangement, you're probably already somewhat delusional, but or delirious, I should say. Uh, but yeah, it happens. It, you know, people stop dialysis, for example, which is effectively the same thing. That's your external kidney, right, you, sure. could, you could argue. And within about two weeks, if you have zero kidney function, some people have always have a little residual kidney function, but if you truly have none, it, it, few people will last um, more than uh, about a month. And that's, uh, it's, it's called ure- uremic poisoning was so, the quaint, quaint term for it. But you got a second kidney from, this is a, was a stranger? No, no, um, this is another earthbound saint. This woman is named Kim Hendrickson. And she was uh, kind of a witness to to all this uh, trauma during uh, uh, before I met. Well, I knew as I said, I knew Virginia slightly, but before Virginia agreed to do this for me back in two thousand and five, and and Kim was a research assistant for Michael Grieva. I'm sure many folks probably know he's a constitutional lawyer who was at a, a scholar who was at AEI at the time. And she was his assistant and my friend. And she saw all this happening and she thought, wow, if you need another one, you know, I'm, I'm keeping mine warm. At the time, she couldn't do it because she was uh, just got married, wanted to have children and understandably you wanted to have her kids first before she subjected herself to it's a fairly it's a fairly small risk, but you know didn't want to complicate things for a future family understand completely also at the time she was well she still is blood type B, and at the time uh, you had to have the same blood type as your donor but again it, it, the science of immuno- immunology has uh, made such such progress that now you can get a kidney from a donor who doesn't even have your blood type. And you do a little more preparation than last time. So I had to go in the hospital a few days earlier and then they what's called plasmapheresis, but basically they take out, they filter out some of your, um, the cells that would otherwise attack the new organ at the, at the right when it's introduced. And so um, they were able to do that and that, and her kidney is working fine and she did it. And, and that time around, the stress level was next to zero because what made the what made the experience of the transplant so difficult was not the surgery. You know, to tell you the truth, that's it's over, right? And I left the hospital in five days, six days, and I'm not that stoic. But actually, all I needed was Tylenol. Not that it didn't hurt, but I mean, and then you recover. Um, the scary parts are whether it's going to be rejected. In other words, whether sure. your immune system will still overpower the efforts to suppress it or whether you get an infection because, again, you're immunosuppressed and they really do do industrial strength immunosuppression at the time of the surgery. And that makes you very prone to infection. infection you're sure. not su- yeah, it's not supposed to go on a train or in crowded places or a plane for about six months. And I actually did get a, an infection and I had to go back, but only for four days. And the antibiotics were incredibly effective. And then I came home and that was that. So what, you know, the, again, the difficult part for me was finding that donor. And Kim took that anxiety, just completely removed it. So, so let's talk about so the policy. Grateful. Let's talk about the policy implications or policy environment, which to review for people who've, like myself, have forgotten uh, from our past episodes on this, which I'll put a link up to. But um, So let's say uh, you were talking to me when you needed that second kidney, and I'd said, you know, Sally, you're a nice person, but this is just a real um, uh, hardship for me. But I'd do it for $10,000. Now, that's an illegal transaction, right? I cannot sell you my kidney. Uh, can I give – I can donate a kidney to a stranger. Mm-hmm. Um, can I donate – and evidently I can donate a kidney to a particular stranger, right? So there's a waiting list right now that's frighteningly long of people who are on dialysis who would like a kidney. They get one when someone just donates to the list. But Kim didn't donate to the list. She donated to you. Explain how that, what, how okay. that worked. Sure. So among living donation, and then we'll get to deceased donation, but among living donation, uh, which accounted for um, 
I have the numbers here somewhere, but accounted for a little under there. Were, well, there were 19, 18,000 kidney transplants last year, and about 5,600 of them came from living people. The remainder came from, obviously from deceased, but not 1,800 minus 5,600 because you can get more than one kidney. 18,000 because you get, get two, two from it, yeah. Yeah, but uh, in any case, so a living donor either comes from a friend or a relative, and that's the typical scenario. There are some amazing souls called um, uh, Good Samaritan donors who just listen to econ talk and think, wow, you know, the shortage is just terrible. Uh, 12 people every day die because nobody was able to give them a kidney or they didn't, they could not survive the list, which now has 98,000 people on it. So someone listens to this, goes to uh, GW and says, I, I just want to be an anonymous kidney donor. So that's called non-directed donation. When someone gives to someone they know, a friend or a, a relative, that's directed. Another form of directed could be, and I don't imagine this happens very much, is if I heard that your uncle needed a kidney and I I really just didn't want to deal with that. I just wanted to give him the kidney and not really, uh, you know, I could give it literally go to the hospital and say, please give my kidney to um, Russ's uncle. But I think that's very that that's more common in the deceased scenario where your neighbor is on dialysis and heaven forbid your kid is in a terrible accident and ultimately dies. And you could say, please give my son's kidney to Russ's uncle, you know. And uh, so that would be a directed deceased. But most deceased kidneys, which come from people who are mainly brain dead, although there, there are some other mechanisms, but it's mainly brain dead individuals, those kidneys, uh, right, go to the next person on the list. It pretty much is a first come, first serve as far as the kidney queue. 98,000 people oh, are on the list. Enough. And, it went down. And, eight, and 18,000 yeah. are available. So that means right, right. there's uh, 80, 70, excuse me, 80,000 80, disappointed people who are going to have to wait till next year. And yeah, some of them, of course, don't make it. They die. Right. Um, so I've, the first question, I'm sure someone's asked you this, and I, it's not a comfortable question, but uh, I think it comes to mind. It's not my way of looking at the world, but. There are people who look at the world this way. They would say, you had no right to two kidneys when there were 98,000 people on that list. You should have donated Kim's kidney. You should have asked Kim to give to the next person on that waiting list. What's your response to that? My res- if somebody said that to me, I would – I would ask them why hey, they Sally, I'm really, I'm really glad you're here, right? Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not, oh, thanks. <laughs> I, I don't know your work as well as I could or should, but you know, I'm glad you're alive. Uh, but I, it's an interesting question of when there's a shortage like this of who should get this precious thing. And in well, the- that's, yeah, right, right. Well, there are two answers to that. I would truly ask the person who, who asked me that question, why don't, you know, why don't, why don't they consider donating? Uh, my other my other question to them was, would you please join our effort to change the, frankly, the law, yeah. the, the ban against uh, rewarding people who would like to save someone's life? Let, let's be able to do that. I mean, my view is Kim's allowed to give her kidney to whoever she wants, and if it happens to be you, that's her choice. So I have no problem with it, but I'm sure there are many people who don't think she should have that choice and who would resent or judge that's the system for that, for well, that aspect you, of it. it yeah, if they did, though, the reality, as you say, the reality is Kim would say, well, tough. Now I'm keeping it. So right. no well, one that's, would. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the other uh, question I had, and I don't know uh, if you know about this, so you can uh, certainly say you don't know. But my understanding is, is that if you're a person of means and you want to don't want to wait on that list, you can go to certain countries in the world. We talked about, I think it's Iran. Is it Iran? That has Iran, but you couldn't go there. But right. yes, that's they, a separate they, issue. They but a yeah. person could, or they could maybe go somewhere else where an Iranian mm-hmm. kidney could be transferred to you, and some other maybe Turkey, who knows where. Um, but I would think that, given how valuable this is, you'd think it'd be difficult to keep people from stop from stopping people from making the transaction. I guess 
the barrier is the medical system because, you know, if I say to you, well, I don't know why, but let, let's say it this way. You come to me, you say, I hear, I'm at the cocktail party, I hear you need a kidney. And I say to you, you know, Sally, again, I'd really love to give you a kidney, but it seems to me that it's a big pain in, uh, I was going to say in the neck, but it's a pain in the <laughs> side for me and I'm just, I don't want to give it up. But, you know, if you made it worth my while, I think we could work something out. And so I, quote, direct my kidney to you, but then you buy me a Ferrari mm-hmm. uh, six months afterwards. That's a – is anybody keeping an eye on that? I mean, I, I hope they don't. they're not, but nah. – No? No, I don't think they are. And I, I can't, I'm sure this kind of thing goes on, and I would be happy to engage in that myself uh, if, if, it, if, you know, if that happened and it was someone I could trust because you really do – I mean, it is – it's uncomfortable. You, well, oh, let me back up. I didn't talk about matchingdonors.com, <laughs> which is a website. It's kind of like a J-date thing, except it's K-date. You're looking for someone to give you a kidney, and it's totally legal. You could go on it right now, matchingdonors.com. And it is, again, no money is exchanged, and there's a big uh, you know, warning sign that it's illegal to exchange any money. But um, but that's, that's a mechanism that I, I did try. Uh, at first, before the guy backed out, and that's when Virginia came along. But uh, that's relevant to what you just asked me, because there are people on that website who are looking for green cards. I mean, they are looking for something in exchange. And I've also gotten a lot of letters from people who, who say, I wish, gosh, I wish this was during the recession. I got so many letters from people saying, I wish I could, I wish I could sell my kidney and get out of foreclosure and or, or get my, one woman had NICU bills to pay, another, another man lost his business. And every one of those letters, every person said, and I would be saving someone. So I, I, I grant you, even if they didn't have that, even if there wasn't that kind of humane dimension to it, I, I think, I still think it would be legitimate for people to be able to re- be rewarded for saving someone's life. But the fact is, that both the financial and the, you know, the hum- humanitarian dimensions, you know, intermingled with every all those all the people who wrote to me, it was really kind of moving. And you wish they could have been able to do that. Yeah, I, I often emphasize. I think it's a really important point that money certainly motivates people. It's not the only thing that motivates people. Uh, there are many, many, many intrinsic rewards that we receive or punishments that we receive for the things we do. And financial incentives are both positive and negative are not the only things that motivate us. Uh, they can motivate us, though, and they, they, are, they can certainly coexist with those other motives. So certainly if I sold you a kidney for $25,000 or a new car, whatever it was, I hope I'd still enjoy also, in addition to that, the satisfaction I'd get from knowing that a person whose health was impaired was now healthy and had a better chance of living a good and healthy life. So I think it's it's a really important point. And so I have, in theory, we'll get to this maybe in a little bit, but I have, in theory, no problem with a market for kidneys where people buy and sell that I assume they would also get the satisfaction from helping people, not just the money. I don't see any reason why those things are exclusive. And I think it's a terrible mistake to think that they that they are. But now let's move to let's move to your proposal. Uh, you have suggested in this article that the federal government incentivize kidney donors with a tax credit. So explain how that might work. The tax credit would just be one option, and, and I'll locate it in the larger context, and then I can tell you what our what our plan was. But the 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 general idea and. Uh, I mean, I think people have been talking about this since I once found a paper in 1960, from 1968. Uh, the first kidney transplant was in 1953. And, uh, and soon, you know, within a decade, people already realized that uh, there was going to be a shortage, even though we officially didn't set up the list until 1984 in this country. But the idea is, uh, well, think about, I guess, first, what you don't want to happen. You don't want someone to rush into this kind of thing and then regret it. Now, maybe you're going to say, well, that, could, that happens all the time in, in human uh, you know, transactions, and that's, that's probably true. But in this case, if you were to design an ideal system, you, I mean, this is a, this is a transaction you know, kind of unlike 
other things. Uh, there are some analogies and we can talk about that, but um, it's a momentous kind of engagement for a, a, a person to, to donate. So you want to make sure they're not rushing into something that they, that they regret. And so this is why a, a, a free market, a classic free market is, is not something that's ever seriously been considered uh, in, in terms of proposals. So the general idea is that there is a third party and it could be the government, it could be um, a government appointed charity or even this could be at the state level that is the um, provider of the benefit. And the benefit is not immediate cash because again, you, you wanna prevent a scenario where a desperately poor person is rushing to do this and then going to regret it. So you don't offer what desperately poor people want, which is immediate cash. So the kinds of rewards that people have talked about are, well, tax credits or a contribution to someone's 401k, uh, loan forgiveness, or they could, for example, forward the benefit to a charity of their choice. But, but you get the idea. Um, and as I said, a third party would administer this. And there'd probably be a waiting period built in of about six, six months to a, a year, again, for a cooling off kind of um, aspect to it. And the funding for this could come from dialysis, which is payments for dialysis from Medicare, which is the largest payer of dialysis, are 7%, 7% of the entire Medicare budget. So it's about 90000 a year for each person. So that could easily uh, underwrite the, the value of the benefit, which most people have, have pegged around 50000 but it's just really almost an intuitive amount. Um, so the tax credit, if, if that were the route that, uh, that was taken, um, but we, we th it would be a refundable tax credit. So people who didn't pay taxes at all would be able to benefit. And the... Uh, they would get um, 5000 uh, a year, either as a refunded benefit or off your taxes if you paid taxes. But that wouldn't kick in. I mean, we're really putting it, we put in a lot of protections and it's quite paternalistic, uh, but it wouldn't kick in for a year. And then it would, again, be 5000 a year. And then um, uh, if it were fundable, it'd be 5000 a year for 10 years. And if it were, um, if a person were paying taxes, I think we said they could have the 25000 after five years. But the idea is to, again, uh, uh, dampen the, the, uh, uh, tr the magnitude of the incentive. And, and I, can t I can tell you why we're twisting ourselves in a pretzel to, uh, <laughs> to do this uh, kind of thing. Um, but, well, the answer very quickly is because of the intense opposition to this idea that has been mounted by much of the transplant community, although to the, to the credit of the transplant surgeons, um, they are more receptive to it and have become more receptive I, to I it over they the would, years. I think they would be. They have a financial incentive. I, I just, I'm going to interrupt because I, I find it Utterly fascinating. Obviously, um, there's a pragmatic aspect to what you're proposing, which I respect. I have no problem with it. Don't agree with the with the outlines of it, though. And I just I just want to make yeah. the case against it, and then you can uh, either just say, "Well, it's pragmatic," or you can disagree with me, whatever you want. Uh, it, it's remarkable to me. First of all, of course, the doctor. The surgeon is not expected to do this life-saving surgery, life-transforming surgery as a charitable act. <laughs> uh, no one says to the surgeon, we'll give you a $50,000 tax credit if you, for every one of these you do or $5,000, whatever it is. We, you're not, I don't want you to get paid for it, of course, because that would be immoral. Uh, and it might make you think that the human body is like um, – Oh, I don't know, a uh, slag mine, a sl you know, mm -hmm. some kind of uh, mm -hmm. coal mine. So uh, we're, we're not going to pay you directly, and we're not going to pay you right away because I want you to do it for the good of the patient. 
So obviously the surgeon has somehow managed to leave, live a decent life and survive by being paid directly a full semi-market. It's not a market amount, of course, but because it's all messed up. But they get, they get cash. They get what's called cash. And yet you're going to make a poor person who wants to transform the life of their mm-hmm. child, mm-hmm. for example, wait five years to get their money. Uh, you're going to make, make them wait, wait no, make them wait. Year, but yeah. No, but to get, not, not to get, they're only going to get 5,000 the first year. Oh, okay, all of it, yeah. Yeah, to get all of it, it's going to be over a few mm-hmm. years. And then the idea that they might want to help their kid now, too bad, we're going to make you wait, make you wait six months so you can be sure you don't, aren't going to regret it. Um, I find it interesting that, of course, I'm a messed up person. I'm an economist, but I find it interesting that anyone would object to this. So the people, I'm fascinated. Welcome to my world. What? Welcome to your world. So, but who, oh, yeah. so who who would? Um, I mean, I think there are different ways to think about it. If you, if you asked, if you did a survey of people and said, "Are you in favor of letting people buy and sell their kidneys?" I think the number would be ninety-eight to two uh, percent to two percent against. Uh, but if you said if a poor person's really desperate and they can save someone's life, should they be allowed to save their kidney and thereby get their child uh, a college education? I think the number would be very different than 98 to 2. And I'm curious how politically you think that works out. Why is it? Is there a better way to say it? Is there a vested interest here that I'm not thinking about yet? I'm going to work on it. But who's, who would Believe be me. who would be yeah. harmed by this? I mean, that the people who, who run the list – they're very important now, and they get a lot of attention, and they have a purpose in life that might be hurt by the fact that this market would work better if we had these incentives, even though they're roundabout. Who would be against? Who's against this? Well, start with the National Kidney Foundation. They have been uh, they have been the most vociferous uh, opponent, and and they actually did actively try to sabotage. Uh, I know I'm not going to, supposed to talk about specific legislation, but efforts uh, years ago that were made to uh, to try to rethink the National Organ Transplant Act, which is the the legislation that forbids any kind of exchange. But um, why are they against it? Why would the National Kidney well, Foundation, which is supposedly in favor of people being helped who are struggling with kidney issues, why wouldn't they be thrilled that say? Oh, I don't know. Seventy-five thousand more people would get kidneys than now. Well, I'm baffled as well, but I can tell you what they say. Yeah, what do they say? Uh, well, they say a few things. Uh, they start using the language of commodification. In other words, uh, you're treating people like uh, spare uh, fenders in a junkyard. They are afraid you are. Um, uh, it will t- it will taint the process. I've heard it will devalue human life. It will uh, it will, and then they say something that's actually something one could measure because an empirical matter that it will crowd out altruistic giving, and worse that it will just crowd out giving in general. Uh, but that's testable. That's possible. That's possible, and, right? It, yeah, right. I've actually looked at. Go ahead. No, I was going to say it's it's possible that if you don't, and this argument's made for blood donation as well. If you're not going to get the the moral satisfaction of helping someone, and now it becomes something you can just buy and sell, you won't donate because it's tawdry, uh, which just means that as an economist, just means you better set the price a little higher than you thought you might have needed to. To over, you might lose the what was it five thousand people who donate right now willingly out of an incredible human kindness. And so now you're going to get as many people as you want to donate out of mercenary motives. And um, Exactly. Um, Exactly. I see your point exactly. I know you do. (laughs) To the the extent that anyone would be, um, I think, dissuaded, I would, as a psychiatrist, say, well, we're – Gee, are we talking about altruism or narcissism? What was really motivating you? Was social signaling motivating you? But in any case, maybe it was, and we know that is powerful for some people. But, uh, well, okay, then I'm sorry you you won't be able to save someone. But here are 10 other people in line who would love to do it. So uh, that gets into the question of motivation, which is also held very dearly by the National Kidney Foundation and other opponents, which is that it has to be done for the right reasons. Uh, but this is what we hear from the National Kidney Foundation, what you hear from some particularly vocal 
transplant surgeons and nephrologists. Although, as I said, as a group, the transplant surgeons are, they did a poll of their organization in 2009 and and the vast majority, 75% were in favor uh, of at least testing this idea. So I do give them credit. But I have to tell you, I've, I've looked at all the polls that have been done on this and the public is much more open-minded than the experts. Um, and then we bring in the bioethicists. Well, that's because the public, there are many of us who have relatives who have kidney problems. Yeah. We want to help them. I, I just have to go back to the National Kidney Foundation for a second. I don't know anyone in the National Kidney Foundation. I know nothing about the N- the NKF or whatever it's called. But it's it's not like a um, it's not like AARP, the American Association of Retired People, which has millions of members. The National Kidney Foundation is a nonprofit. I assume its headquarters. I assume are in Washington D.C. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. No, I think they are. Yeah. And they have some number of people in that building in Washington, D.C., maybe a, a hundred. Uh, I doubt they have a thousand. What's it mean to say they're against it? Why do they matter? And politically, why does anyone care what the National Kidney Foundation thinks? Yeah, they matter a, a lot uh, to my deep chagrin because uh, they are the first uh, organization that uh, a Congress, uh, congressional offices think of. They always say, well, what does the NKF think? It's kind of like a cancer issue. You know, what is the, what is the NCI? What does the uh, American Cancer Society think? They have, they have disproportionate uh, influence and I'm sure, and they have a pack as well. But um, it is unfortunate. Who in would my donate view. money to that pack? <laughs> oh, anyone who's <laughs> see people who get people who um, people who've gotten deceased kidneys, and people who they they actually have. I get it. I, it's okay. I get it. Okay. Obviously, there's some sense of gratitude there because they're the coordinators of the list, and they make a donation or whatever. But um, uh. I'm not giving them another penny until they change their view on monetary incentives, and I don't give them a penny now, so it's not much of a threat. But it's um, it's a fascinating issue. I, let, let's take one of their arguments more seriously. I mean, we're picking on them, uh, and it's not, of course, just them. They're other. They're not alone. It's not like they're the only people against this. A lot of people are troubled or uneasy about monetary incentives, and I understand that. Would it? Let's take the commodification idea seriously. Is there something immoral or – we have taboos about it, but if we think about it rationally a little bit, is there something immoral about uh, sharing a body part uh, for money? I mean that's that's really what it comes down to. What I think is fascinating – the reason I bring up the surgeon thing, it wasn't my idea. I forget who wrote about it first where I read it, but I, it's fascinating that that's not commodification, that the surgeon's hands are used to make money to uh, – rip out somebody's kidney and shove it into somebody else's body. We don't consider that person somehow morally uh, troubled. And yet somehow, and they make money, real cash, and yet somehow if we are to do it, who don't have their, what, high priest status? I don't know what's the, I'm in a, I'm in a, I'm in a um, ornery mood um, <laughs> hearing your plight. Um, it's just interesting that, that this idea, commodification is an interesting word, right? Yeah, it, I, it sounds awful. I don't know really what it means when I right. push it. Well, it's it's one of the three words that are used to, frankly, um, I don't want to sound melodramatic, but silence folks like me. And I'm not the only one. <clears throat> Heaven knows. I, I mean, Richard Epstein, a lot of us, Virginia, have been uh, vocal about uh, you know changing the law. But but commodification, exploitation, and coercion are the, the holy trinity that's supposed to end the the discussion. Uh, but you're exactly right. The one person who takes the risk and gives the thing a value gets nothing. Um, commodification, from what I can – when. It becomes pretty clear when you listen to people who brandish that word in a menacing way. What they really are concerned about is having respect for the for the donor and treating him or her well. And of course, that is essential. It's the basis of any kind of ethically sound system. Uh, in fact, I would say there are at least four elements. One is respect for the person's capacity to make a decision about something that might be in his own best interest. Then, of course, informed consent. Um, these are all the things that are not, of course, in a black market, yet uh, f- 
folks who have uh, debated uh, me and, and others say, well, if we do this here, we'll have a black market. And you want to say, what? <laughs> we have a black market. And frankly, we have a thriving global black market yeah. in Oregon it's because we don't have a transparent system. But anyway, uh, respect for the person's autonomy, you know, informed consent, you protecting their health, which of course doesn't happen in a black market at all. Uh, and in fact, even in our current system, uh, if you don't have health insurance and you have a complication a few months after you've donated, granted probably most hospitals will help you out, but they don't have to. Uh, in fact, in, in our plan, there would be health insurance for at least two years so that if there were complications, the person would be guaranteed to be taken care of. Anyway, you know what that, another- you know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of when I think if you're in the Baseball Hall of Fame, you get a lifetime pass to any park in America. Uh, it it, it kind of should be. Uh, it's, this is not a um, serious comment, but there's something uh, emotionally satisfying about the idea that if you if you've crossed into a hospital – to voluntarily help save a life with one of your organs, you should be able to walk into a hospital for the rest of your life and say, I need this, give it to me. And they should just say, oh, yeah, you're one of those, you're in, it's all taken care of, it's free, here's your free pass. But that's a little extreme. Um, Uh, well, I was just going through my my, uh, my internal list of uh, the, qual- the the conditions that need to be satisfied to allay the fact that someone is not being respected. Um, so you reward them amply. Obviously, if you gave them a buck, now that would be exploitation. But you reward them in a generous way. Gratitude is expressed, um, and that's really all that needs to to happen. And none of it happens in a black market, of course, but uh, can easily happen here. And it it happens already, except there's no money attached to it. But in this case, there would be a reward for people who would like, again, to benefit while they save someone's life. You spoke loosely a minute ago. You said the the one person doesn't get anything out of it is the donor. But, of course, the donor does get the emotional satisfaction, which is is enormous. I know you meant that. I I just was a figure of speech. But it's an interesting question. I'm not going to take the critics of of our perspective a little more seriously. Interesting question. Let's suppose, um, just hypothetically, that that the market price, whether it's where we're a literal market, which I understand, I agree, is unlikely. No one proposed it seriously other than maybe me and three other people. But let's say we went to some system where we allowed this sort of arm's length third-party compensation via the tax system or something else uh, that you're that you're incur- you'd like to encourage, and let's say that number got to be a million dollars. Okay, that's what it took. And someone, maybe a foundation, steps forward and says, "I want to. I don't just want to save the ninety-eight thousand people on the list. I want to save the X hundred thousand, five hundred thousand, whatever it is, who are at risk. And rather than wait till they go on dialysis, they should just get a new kidney. And I'm going to pick a large enough number that compensating them that." the donors that they'll step forward up will step forward. And that turns out to be worth a million dollars. I'm going to say something really tacky here, which is, uh, but it's mildly amusing for EconTalk listeners. Uh, somebody who's been listening to EconTalk since 2010 has heard about Bitcoin. And uh, I have a friend who mocks me because I knew about Bitcoin in 2010 and missed the boat. Um, of course, he missed he wasn't an econ talk listener then, so he missed the boat too. So it's kind of a mutual make fun of each other thing. But it'd be an interesting thing to think about. You have two people in your life who did something unbelievably generous. What this system that you're encouraging would do would put a monetary value in some dimension on their kindness. And it also, in a way, would suggest what they gave up to give you a kidney. That It's one thing to say, well, they risked their life which they did. It's something to say that they went through surgery, which is painful and scary, which they did. They also had recovery that they endured, which they did. And now you're telling them, and by the way, you could have made a million dollars. You gave away that precious thing. Now, my view on that is that makes it even sweeter to them that they did something. In a way, it enhances their generosity. But perhaps some people would say it, it creates bitterness. It takes the emotion out of it. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, you know, Russ, I'm sorry, but I actually think I missed the offer that people would, did you say they'd be offered a million dollars if they'd no, give I, a kidney to get? No, I'm uh-huh. saying suppose after the system that you and I 
you and I would like a different system than the current system, which relies only on altruism. Right. And let's suppose that the either because there's a, a free market in kidneys or because some kind of encouragement step comes forward in the form of a tax credit or payment of a uh, house note or whatever it is by a third party, whether it's the government through the tax system or a foundation. And it turns out that that price gets set not at 50000 but at a million. Oh, okay. So, I'm so that yeah. tells – Virginia and Kim, your two angels, Mm -hmm. uh, that they did something, that they gave up an enormous sum of money and gave you something. Does it change their feeling about it? Would it change the level of gratitude you feel? Was it, I I just said, it adds something to it. We have to be fair to the quote commodification people. It puts a price tag on something that right now is unpriced. Well, I guess we have to realize that. I, I mean, there are things. I guess we have some models for it where, you know, there may be a law passed that now you could take a huge tax credit for something that you couldn't have before. And then there's some regret. So I think there's always regret built into any kind of transaction when can, that can, conditions can change. But I'll tell you, there's just so much latitude you have. And now I'm, I, I have to be relentlessly practical on this issue, on this issue which is the MDs are always the intermediary. I mean, and they won't do, <laughs> right now we can't even, frankly, make enough headway to get them to even, as a group, seriously consider this, to even study this, to be honest. But you know, but let's say the price went up to a million. Um, they would talk about, this is where they would talk about um, uh, undue inducement. In other words, an offer that's too good to be, re- an offer that's too good to refuse and I'm telling you, an IRB would never get this thing, would never go. Explain. Get past What's it. an IRB? Oh, uh, Institutional Review Board. Yeah. I mean, it would be considered just unethical, and they would never do you know it. What this, you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of Nick Saban. Nick Saban's the coach of the Alabama football team. He is part of a cartel called the National Collegiate Athletic Association that makes it illegal to pay athletes who perform at the University of Alabama anything other than tuition. The market value of those athletes, a handful of them, is tens, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars for the amount of money that they generate for the University of Alabama and other similar football programs. And it is considered demeaning to them that they would be paid for their toil in the trenches of the football stadium. But somehow Nick Saban can make millions of dollars a year, and he will tell you with a straight face, and I've heard other coaches – I've never heard – Nick say this, but for other coaches say this, it wouldn't be good for the educational aspects of, of football and the university system for those athletes to be paid. But somehow it's okay for the coaches to make millions of dollars off the free labor of these people. So these surgeons and doctors who you're defending right now, they make hundreds of thousands and sometimes millions of dollars transplanting kidneys, that the few that are available, and would be offended if somehow people made as much money as they did. doesn't sound so good. <laughs> oh, actually, <laughs> oh, well, for what it's worth, they're actually not, a, they don't begrudge. <laughs> I think any of these people making money, I'm sure if their stocks, you know, split seven times, they'd be thrilled for their patients. But yeah, a lot of them, you're right, do find this troubling. Uh, but I, again, I have to shout out to all the 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 surgeons I have been working with over the years and all the ones that have, that have come come around to at least testing this, but unfortunately their organization, the American Society of Transplant Surgeons, will not officially um, make a statement that we, we should study this. But, you know, I mean, one thing that comes up, and if you don't want to go in this direction, we don't have to, but is, um, the, the, you know, the language that's used in these debates, and I frankly almost put debates in quotes because some of the moral reasoning is, is so shoddy, but, you um, you know, as I said before, though, you hear words like exploit. You hear words that no one ever defines. Um, well, like commodification is one of them. And it's arguably, yeah, arguably the doctors, right, who do the surgery have commodified their, their service. And the, uh, the um, procurement service, which is uh, they're performed by OPOs, organ procurement organizations, that are paid by, I, I believe, Medicare or Medicaid. Um, 
or they're paid from the federal government. It could be through the United Network for Organ Sharing. But in any case, it's um, $50,000 to take an organ and trans, uh, transfer it, you know, from a deceased person in an emergency room to uh, an operating room, you know, somewhere else. So, yeah, there's a lot of money floating around. But exploitation, for example, is a word you will hear. And that makes sense in the black market where these poor folks are offered a pittance. Now, granted, even in their world, $2,000 means uh, could mean a hell of a lot, but they don't get that $2,000. It's rare that they get what they're promised. There's no contract, so of course they can't uh, go on. They're not informed consent. Those people are exploited. Then you hear about coercion, and that is a word. In fact, um, Alan Wertheimer, who was a wonderful um, philosopher, I believe, political philosopher. Unfortunately, he passed away recently, but he he actually did a survey uh, of bioethicists and and asked them about the definitions of words like coercion, exploitation. (laughs) And actually, most of them got coercion wrong. Uh, it can mean two means two things. Basically, I kidnap you. You know, in the most physical sense, I've 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 uh, imposed um, my physical will on you. I'm not going to let you leave my house. I kidnapped you. Whatever you strong arm someone in the most literal sense, or you present a choice, and where either option leaves you worse off. You know, like your money or your life. Yeah. If I am if I am given the opportunity to sell my kidney, that's not. That's not coercion, because if I don't do it, I'm not any worse off. Yet, that's a word they frequently use. And what they really mean is undue inducement, as opposed to inducement. You know, inducement is when we're walking down the street and we see a big ad in Saks that says 50% off. And, you know, it's something you wouldn't have done ordinarily. You wouldn't have shopped in Saks ordinarily. Well, maybe you would, but... Sadly, I don't. But I don't. If, there's a, if there's a good sale, I'll really think about it. I'll do something I might not have otherwise done. But that's, you know, that's just an inducement. It, it becomes an undue inducement. And this is where the too good to, you know, too good to refuse um, dimension comes in. When the, uh, the temptation is so strong that it actually interferes with my capacity to rationally weigh the costs and benefits. Yeah, of, of course, of course, that's very hard to measure. We had an episode with Mike right. Munger on what he calls "you voluntary exchange," which relates to some of these issues. I encourage people uh, to listen to that. Uh, we're, we're almost out of time. You have you have a very brief speculation in your paper about the future of um, of organ transplants. Um, there's some encouraging news on the horizon. Talk about that. Even if none of these changes that you and I think I are in favor of would, if they, even if they don't happen. Yeah, I think, you know, when you have your econ talk in 25 to 30 years with, uh, a, you know, some genius materials uh, scientist, uh, he can tell you all about the synthetic organs. I, I think there's no question that um, our, you know, your grandkids are going to think it was primitive that we had to take organs from from actual people. Um, we'll, we'll probably either be um, printing organs, which means that you would have a cartilaginous um, infrastructure or, or skeleton uh, of, of any of the organs. And the heart is the most easy to en- envision. Actually, if you take the cells, you can wash the cells. I mean, obviously, it's a complicated process, but you, you can actually take the cells off a heart and then you're left with kind of a skeleton underneath. It's not bone, it's cartilage. But And then you could use the patient's own uh, own stem cells uh, to to seed it. And uh, cells know where to go. It's quite, they're quite brilliant. Um, we already do that with hollow organs like bladders and tracheas, but uh, we'll get to the point. I have no question we'll be able to do it for the more complex organs, hearts, livers, kidneys, maybe one of the toughest. Their architecture is very complicated or what's called transgenic pigs, uh, where their uh, their kidney is uh, or their immune systems are manipulated in such a way that uh, the kidney that the kidney of that pig could be transplanted into a person and not rejected or not even um, transmit the, really the hardest 
puzzle has been to, to protect against transmitted viruses that are endemic to uh, certain animal species. Um, maybe microdialysis machines. You know, right now a dialysis machine looks like a washing machine, but there's no reason, and they already have smaller versions of them, but there's, I'm sure they'll be able to uh, microtech through technology um, I could imagine an implantable uh, kidney that works like a dialysis machine as opposed to being a, you know, an, an organ replica. So I, I have no question that this problem will be solved in the next few decades, but it's a lot of death until then. It's about seven to 8,000 people a year who die because they couldn't survive the wait for any organ. My guest today has been Sally Sattel. Sally, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Oh, thank you for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.